I'm going to read the passage for us. It comes from Luke 24. We've been going through a series on Acts, uh, but we're going to take a break from that uh, for Easter. But there is some continuity. Luke wrote both Acts and this gospel. Uh, So this comes from Acts chapter 24, verses 13, and we'll go all the way to verse 35. You can follow along up here. Can you guys see if I stand here or should I? All right. Not really, right? I'll stand over here real quick and then I'll move. All right. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. All right, guys. Happy Easter. Um, Good morning. He is risen. Um, And I wish preaching was just uh, that simple where I just have to stand up and say, he is risen. Amen. Let's go get brunch. Um, But that is not the way that it works. But just so we're clear what we're talking about, we are talking about the resurrection. And the resurrection is not just this vague idea that after we die, there's some kind of existence afterward. Like we're all part of the circle of life and the dust will feed the worms, will feed the flowers. It's not even this idea that one day our souls will just kind of go into heaven and float off into space and join with other souls. The idea of the resurrection is one day our body itself will come together with our soul and I, this very person, will be rose again from the dead and be able to fellowship again. And throughout history, there have been all kinds of strange interpretations and wonderings about what was going to happen. And one question that um, comes up is, what age am I going to be in my resurrection body? Am I going to be 
this Fred <laughs> or am I going to be a different Fred? Uh, a popular answer in the Middle Ages was the age 33 because this is the age that Jesus had died, right? So when me and my wife were about to turn 33, we made sure we were in shape. <laughs> we made sure we had good haircuts. We made sure our fashion was on point just in case. That was the body we'd have for eternity. So this is what we're here to celebrate. But the resurrection itself is not like this seed that plants itself, that waters itself, that finds the sunlight and is able to grow. It's something that you really have to take time to think about to allow it to have its proper effect. And all this week, I knew I'd be preaching. I knew this is Resurrection Sunday, so I said, okay, I've got to have this thing in my mind. But what did I do all week? I spent all week um, going to the DMV, going to doctor's appointments. This new show, Beef, came out on Netflix, so I started watching Beef. And you just realize how hard it is to keep Christ at the very center of all that you're trying to do, especially something like the resurrection. And one thing that's very important to understand from this passage is we all have access to this truth, but it doesn't impact our lives the way that it should. We all know the same information, but it doesn't change our attitude or our behavior. And some of you have probably experienced this. If you're ever dating or married to a person who grew up in a big family, you go out to eat with them. You go, huh, what should we eat? You order something. You pray for the food. And then within a minute, the other person has finished everything on their plate before you took a single bite. And you want to go, hey, 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 we're not in your family room anymore. Nobody's going to steal your food. There's plenty of food here, right? So the idea is because they grew up a certain way, they think everyone's going to steal their food. So they eat really fast. And it's so frustrating to eat with somebody like that. You also have a similar situation. If you are with somebody and they grew up in a family without money, it's so hard to shake those kind of habits, even when you show them, hey, we have enough. We can live comfortably. There's still this anxiety about, well, because of the way I grew up, I am not going to be able to shake it. And the same thing is true for the disciples in this story. When you look through verses 19 to 24, you see that they have every single piece of information that they need to know that Jesus has risen from the dead. They say that he was a prophet. They say that he was condemned. They say that he was put on the cross. And they say that women went to the tomb and that it was empty. They saw a vision of an angel and said that he was alive. And the disciples went and looked and they found it exactly as the people had said. But like somebody who cannot put the puzzle together, even though they have all the pieces, these two disciples are not filled with joy. They're not proclaiming that the resurrection has happened. Where are they when the story starts? The place that they're at is in verse 17. It says they're looking sad and they're walking away from Jerusalem. What that means is they decided this life that we've dedicated ourselves to for the last three years is not working out. We need to go back home. They're like all of us. We know that the resurrection is important, but it doesn't really have the power and the impact on our lives as it should. And all of this starts to change as these two guys go on a road trip and they meet a stranger. So we're going to talk about that, but before we do, let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you so much for giving us this chance to worship you. We thank you so much for giving us the power of your resurrection. But we know from our own lives that living the power of the resurrection is so difficult because there's so many things that are going on around us. There's so many things that we experience that seem contrary to the hope that you're calling us to have. I pray that as we worship you today, as we hear your word, as we think about what it means that you rose again from the dead, you would touch our hearts 
is that we would be passionate about our relationship with you, that we would have joy, and that we would know that one day we'll be with you again. We thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So like I said, these guys had all the puzzle pieces, and they knew everything that they needed to know to know that Jesus had risen from the dead. But for some reason, their hearts were not in it. They were still sad, and they were still just trying to go back to their normal lives. Uh, I'm a high school teacher, and so one thing that I've started doing is doing um, SAT tutoring for verbal sections. And so a couple months ago, I took the SAT verbal section, and, you know, I went to college. I got a master's degree. I got a PhD. So I'm like, this should be pretty easy. I took it. I did not (laughs) do that well, and I was shocked. I was like, oh, my gosh, what is going on here? And it's because the way the SAT is structured is if you're reading a sentence and you don't know the meaning of a single word, you cannot grasp any other part of it. The entire answer hinges on whether your vocabulary is good enough to know that single word. And the disciples are exactly the same way. They have all the pieces of the resurrection, but they are stuck on one word. And that one word is keeping them from really experiencing the fullness of what Jesus actually did. And what is that word? The word is suffering. Jesus says, you foolish and slow of heart, did you not know that Christ had to suffer? And when they're telling their version of the story, they said, we thought this guy was going to be the redeemer of Israel, but he died the death of a criminal, so he could not possibly be who we thought he was. And suffering is not a part of their ideal picture of a savior. So as I mentioned, um, we've been watching the show Beef, and I won't give anything away, but the show starts with a road rage incident. And it made me think about this time where I was with my um, dad. So I was with my dad, um, and he used to drive a Hyundai Excel. And I was like, why Hyundai? He goes, we have to support uh, the Korean economy. So I said, okay, fine. Um, and he used to like fumble around with stuff all the time. Like he used to listen to the Madonna soundtrack for Evita and used to sing like, um, don't cry for me, Argentina, at the top of his lungs and things like that. So one day he's singing this song, and we must have been like, I don't know, seven or eight. And I guess he's not paying attention, and he accidentally cuts off uh, this other car behind us. And then we're stuck in like bumper-to-bumper traffic after that. So these guys are behind us the entire time. And then they pull over into a gas station, and these two guys get out of the car and start berating my father from the car while he's on the road. So we're like 20 feet away. And I'm like seven And as a seven-year-old, your dad is the most powerful man in the entire universe. And I expected him to, like, you know, tear his shirt, like Hulk Hogan style, and go after these two. But he just sat there quietly and took it. And as a seven-year-old, that was the first time, like, the strongest man in my world was just kind of weakened. And I remember it in a very, like, strange way. It shook me. And this is the same thing that the disciples had experienced. Here's a guy who had fed 5,000 people with just a little bit. He had healed everybody, and they were expecting him to free Israel. But over the last three days, they had experienced something completely different. If you look at what happened to him, he suffered in a very pathetic and weak way. Okay, we all know that there is suffering, and there is like glorious suffering. If he's going to suffer, let him suffer in battle. Let him have a sword. Let him have a shield. Let him fight with the Romans. But that is not what happened. Um, This Friday, our small group gathered together, and we were able to read some of the passages. And when you read the passages that go with Good Friday, the day that he died, you see how pathetic Jesus ends up by the end of that day. He's got his closest friends, and one of them betrays him with a kiss and hands him over. 
When he's arrested, all of his good friends flee in the other direction so that he's alone. Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Jewish leaders all question him, and instead of standing up for himself, he sits there quietly. He's beaten, he's mocked, he's crucified, and that's it. This is the man who was supposed to save Israel, and he dies this weak and pathetic death. And to these two disciples, it does not fit, it does not match the picture that they had for him. And so this is the word in the middle of the sentence that the disciples cannot get past. We know that the women went to the tomb and found it empty, but we cannot believe that the Savior we were expecting is somebody who would suffer such a weak and such a pathetic death. But then a stranger comes alongside of them on the road and says, you foolish, dumb disciples, don't you know that Jesus had to suffer? And he slowly begins to open up the scripture to them to show that this thing that happened to Jesus was not an accident, but something that had been planned from the beginning. When you look through the book of Psalms, down to the very details, you see that this is exactly how it's supposed to happen. It mentions somebody being pierced in their hands and in their feet. It mentions somebody dividing his garments. It mentions somebody casting lots. It mentions someone being betrayed by somebody who had eaten bread with them. It mentions being abandoned by all of your friends. This thing that happened to Jesus goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And Jesus says, hey, look, this is something that was supposed to happen even from the beginning. And there's this larger pattern at work. It says Jesus started with Moses. We remember Moses as this mighty man who split the Red Sea. But when he did that, he was 80 years old. For 40 years prior to that, he was alone in the desert tending sheep. We remember David as this mighty and powerful king. But before that, he was running around from cave to cave hiding from Saul. Suffering and going through valleys is part of the experience of getting to glory. Now, these two disciples thought the Messiah would go from strength to strength, from miraculous thing to miraculous thing to one day coming in power and conquering over all the Romans. They did not know that there would be a dip in his life that consisted of suffering. But why was it necessary that he suffered? The reason is this. Throughout Luke, Jesus tells us that he did not come for the healthy, but he came for the sick. He did not come for the strong, but he came for those who were in need. It's like a fisherman. If Jesus had just gone from strength to strength, it's like a fisherman who throws his net and just skims the surface. And what kind of fish are you going to catch at that point? You're going to catch beautiful fish that get to swim along on the surface of the river or the lake, soaked in the sun, living in warm water. And if Jesus had gone from power to power, the only people that would have been following him into the resurrection are powerful people, religious leaders, rich people, political leaders who can use all of their wealth, all their power, all their resources to shield themselves from any kind of suffering. But that is not the person that Jesus came for. Jesus dips his net deep into the water so that he can catch tax collectors. He can catch prostitutes. He can catch a woman who was ostracized by everybody else and broke a bottle of perfume on his feet and kissed them. He can catch a widow who only had two pennies but gave it over in order to sacrifice to the Lord. He catches people who are at the bottom of the bottom, people who are suffering. The reason that Jesus had to go through this period of suffering was it was core to his mission, not contrary to his mission. Jesus came for the weak, for those who are suffering. And because of his death, 
Now he can invite all those of us who are suffering into his camp. And when they heard this, the disciples said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us? Because now it seems to make sense. Their eyes slowly begin to open and their picture slowly starts to come together. But then we encounter another reason that was so difficult for them to really experience the power of the resurrection. When I was a kid, um, we used to watch uh, Superman. And Superman is based off of this dumb premise that if you part your hair the other way and you put on glasses, nobody's going to be able to recognize you. And I thought that was so silly for the longest time uh, until this weird thing happened to me. So younger, in my 20s, um, I used to grow my hair out, like, pretty long. Um, and it looked, I thought it looked very cool, and I thought I looked, like, super, like, awesome. But one day, Jen and I were uh, in the East Village, and our backs were turned to the lady behind us. And the lady says, uh, let me know if I can help you two ladies. And then I turned around. She's like, whoops. <laughs> and I got my hair cut immediately the next day, right? But when that happened, right, so as soon as I got my hair cut, and uh, this one day I put on contact lenses, I went to church. And this guy I had been in small group with for an entire year came up to me and introduced himself to me. He goes, hey, I'm Eric. Like, Eric, I'm your small group leader. I've known you for a year. He's like, what? And then he realized, like, oh, but you don't have your glasses and you don't look like a woman anymore. So I couldn't recognize that it was you. Sometimes we come across a situation where we're not recognizing the person who's standing right in front of us. Uh, this can happen, like, if you go to your high school reunion, you see who's gotten bald, who's lost weight, so on and so forth. You go, oh, I kind of see that person. It also happens when you see somebody in a different context. If you're used to seeing somebody in sweats all day and then all of a sudden you see them in a suit, it's like, whoa, I never knew you could look like that. One time I saw one of my college friends running in Central Park, and he's like this, like, nerdy guy. But for some reason, like, his, like, he was in glory. Like, the sun was behind him, and he was running, and I could see all the muscles on his arms. And they're like, oh, my gosh, this guy's like a Greek god. But I didn't think anything like that until I saw him in this different context. And sometimes the reason that you can't tell the person in front of you is deliberately because they're trying to hide. And when you look at these verses, it's very odd because Jesus hid himself from them. He made it so they could not recognize him. And he's almost like a prankster, right? He's like, he couldn't keep them from seeing them. He said, oh, I'm going to go a little bit further. And when they asked him, have you heard of everything that's happened? He's like, oh, what are you talking about? I don't know. And Jesus is playing his own different version of undercover boss, but in all of these situations where you're supposed to recognize somebody, there's always this tell, right? So there's a Pearl Jam song called Elderly Woman Behind a Counter in a Small Town. And in that, there's a line that says, I recognize you from the smell of your breath, right? And so when you see somebody you don't even recognize, sometimes there's something small that they do where you can go all of a sudden, oh, that's the person that I knew from so long ago. And this is where we encounter the second reason these two disciples had such a difficult time with the resurrection. The person that they thought was going to bring them life and salvation had died the death of a criminal, and they thought that he was gone forever. But suddenly, they're eating with a stranger, they're sitting down to a meal, they break bread, and in that small action, their eyes are open, and they realize that the person they thought was gone forever is actually there in front of them. And this is where we learn something powerful about the resurrection. Even if we do not recognize him in our midst, Jesus is still with us. We don't have to be conscious of the fact that somebody is literally walking by our side. We live in a world where winter gives way to spring, where seed gives way to flower, where all of a sudden death produces life. 
We live in a world where one day we are going to be reunited with the people who are gone that we thought we would never see again, but we are there together. Jesus' resurrection means he is with us even when we do not recognize him. And he's with us in these small, tiny ways. When we read the Bible together, when we talk together, when we break bread together, he is with us. So at the beginning of the story, the disciples are sad and they're walking away from Jerusalem towards Emmaus and their hearts are broken. But by the end of the story, it says our hearts are burning and they run back seven miles that very night to tell the disciples, Jesus is alive. And good news, the reality is the resurrection is true whether we're aware of it or not. But my challenge for us is this. Let's not be like these two disciples at the beginning of the story who are trying to go about our own lives, still overwhelmed by the sadness that we have. But let us get to a place where we are passionate about the resurrection. So how did they do that? Very simply, they read the scriptures together and they broke bread together. And so that's what we're going to do today. So before we um, do that, why don't we take a little bit of time, close our eyes and pray and reflect on the power of the resurrection. Maybe uh, your week was like mine, where it was hard to focus, hard to keep all that Christ had done for us in sight and in mind. But why don't we reflect on this, that even when Christ is hard to recognize, and even though we feel like we can't see him, he is with us in a powerful way. He's with us in the scripture. He's with us in the breaking of bread. The resurrection power that exists can turn our hearts aflame so that we can be passionate about our relationship with him. So let's take a little bit of time and prepare our hearts as we get ready for communion, and then we can take of this meal together. Uh, Dear God, we just thank you so much for giving us this chance uh, to fellowship together, to break bread together, and to recognize in it that you are no longer dead, but you are alive. And because that is true, you can give us passion in our hearts for our relationship with you. You can remind us that one day we'll be reunited with you in the flesh. And I pray that as we partake of this meal, you would strengthen our hearts so that we are no longer walking away from Jerusalem walking away and going about our own lives, but running towards you, wanting to be near you, wanting to be close to you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.